Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. It's not that I'm like racing to replace people or, you know, cut costs or whatever, but I always kind of come back to sort of an, you know, a Bezos style, like what does the customer really want? Right. And the customer wants like immediate response 24 seven, like where I can pause the conversation where I want to at my convenience and be able to come back and pick it up, you know, right where I left off and maybe even switch modalities. And, you know, ChatGPT offers me all these things today. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. As we head into 2024, I've been thinking a lot about where we are in terms of AI's impact on knowledge work. While 2023 certainly brought explosive growth in AI adoption, to be honest, things have moved a little less quickly than I had expected. At retail prices, $1 billion only buys one to two GPT-4 API calls for each of the world's 8 billion citizens, which really just goes to show what a tiny toehold language models have established in knowledge work globally. Even if this were to go 100x over the next year, it's still just one GPT-4 API call per person per day, still a tiny fraction of the knowledge work that humans are doing. So why this delay relative to my admittedly very high expectations, and what are the likely solutions? First, while I've definitely argued that OpenAI has modes, I have been a bit surprised by how long it has taken for other companies to match the quality of GPT-4. It's fair to say, I think, at this point that GPT 3.5 level models are effectively commoditized. But GPT 4 is different. Only Anthropic, and now Google with Gemini, are really even in the ballpark in the West. Though it's worth noting, and I do hope to have another episode on this soon, that Baidu's Ernie 4.0 also appears to be a worthy contender. A second major issue is that language models are weird, and the know-how to successfully implement them into automated workflows remains relatively scarce. Most companies are naturally excited about opportunities to save 90% of their costs by automating tasks that nobody enjoys anyway. But if they don't have or know someone who can execute on such a project, they really have no choice but to wait. A third issue is that AI agents, which promise to allow people to delegate work to AI on a real-time, more ad hoc basis, have not matured as fast as I thought they might. In part, that's due to ongoing GPU shortages. I've repeatedly said that I think GPT-4 Vision, originally introduced in March, but only now hitting general availability, will boost agent performance. And indeed, we already are starting to see new reports of much better performance at significantly lower cost, simply because computer interfaces are designed to be interpreted visually, and GPT-4 Vision now makes that possible. What else is standing in the way? Another challenge is that it turns out that we can boost AI performance significantly by decomposing tasks into subparts. But then when we try to string long chains of these subparts back together into meaningful work, it becomes very tricky to determine what information to give the AI 
at each step along the way. Too much information can be unwieldy, and in any case makes the agents slower and much more expensive. While too little information leads to bad decisions and overall failure. GPT-4 fine-tuning, which is also still in early access-only mode as of now, will probably help here. Fine-tuning in general is very useful for shaping model behavior. And regular listeners will know from the recent emergency episode on the Mamba architecture that I expect state-space models to deliver more coherent, agentic behavior as well. But even if so, this would pose another challenge. Where are we going to get all the long episode, context-rich, how-we-work-in-practice sort of data that we're going to need to train these long-context AIs? Where does that data exist today, if at all? One likely source of such data, I think, are the software platforms in which people currently do their day-to-day -day work, which naturally capture records of the work and also implicitly define the space of possible actions that a human or an hypothetical AI agent might take at any given time along the way. So with all that in mind, I was very interested to discover Dialpad, a communications platform that uses AI to deliver assistance, automation, and insights to human users who today are mostly sales and customer success teams. Having been in business for years and having grown a customer base to more than 30,000 businesses, Dialpad is now in a unique position with a proprietary dataset of more than 5 billion minutes of sales and service calls, which they've now used to train their own transcription and large language models. This looks to me like a near ideal opportunity to begin experimenting with AI employees. Though, as you'll hear in this conversation with Dan O'Connell, Dialpad's chief AI and strategy officer, he's not expecting these changes quite as rapidly as I am. And based on my predictions last year, I have to say there's a pretty good chance that he'll end up being right. Yet at the same time, regardless of how long it takes, it does seem clear to me that huge amounts of routine knowledge work will ultimately be done by AI. So while I'll continue to hold myself accountable for the best possible predictions that I can give, it does also seem to make sense for me to bias my analysis toward shorter timeline scenarios, simply because those are the ones in which AI scouting will ultimately become most valuable. As always, if you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to share it with your friends or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You would be amazed at how few reviews we get. I literally get 10 times as many personal notes as we get online reviews. And yet, I understand that it does make a huge difference to podcast distribution. So I would really appreciate it if you would take just a minute to write a short online review. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation about AI and the present and future of knowledge work with Dan O'Connell, Chief AI and Strategy Officer at Dialpad. Dan O'Connell, Chief AI and Strategy Officer at Dialpad, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Nice. Thanks for having me, Nathan. I'm excited to talk to you about the platform that you guys have built and are continuing to build and are making more and more AI-centric. I've, you know, I, one of my calling cards in doing this show is I do my homework. So I've gone in and uh, created a free trial account and bounced around and called myself and transcribed a little bit. So, you know, I guess I would briefly describe Dialpad as a sort of almost everything hub for the work that sales and customer service teams in particular are actually like doing, like you're actually in Dialpad a lot doing your work. Tell me about, you know, the product and your customers, I guess, for starters. 
Yeah, see, so see me. You see me on video. You know, I'm smiling and laughing as you're describing. You did it. You did it exceptionally well. And you know, I would add. You know, communications platform is the easiest, easiest way to think about it. So we do voice, video messaging on any device anywhere in the world. Uh, that can be used for internal communications between teams, but it can also be used, as you mentioned, for external communications, supporting sales organizations or customers. And uh, we build AI throughout that platform. So how do we go capture a conversation, transcribe it, and then focus on building features that help with assistant automation and insights from those conversations? Assistance automation and insights. Okay, we'll come back to that. I looked you up on G2 as well. Good reviews, upper right quadrant. 56% of the businesses SMB, 37% mid-market. What would you say is kind of the state of, you could even maybe broaden a little bit beyond AI, but I'm, I'm very curious about AI adoption, just knowing this business segment as I do and knowing that they're not always the quickest to embrace new technology. Yeah, and and those are obviously like self-reported from, from G2. Like we would classify ourselves on like our revenues. So, and then just for context for like size of business, we're at north of a $200 million ARR business, 30,000 customers. Pretty much a third, a third, a third across SMB mid-market and enterprise. We have some really big brands that use this, Stripe, Twitter, Uber, HubSpot. Uh, then we also can go and power, you know, really small businesses that might be a law firm of two or three people. Um, I would say like the general thing that we see from our customers are very much people that believe in the cloud to no surprise. But um, when you thought when you talk about communications, there's still a lot of people that run their whole PBX system or phone system in a closet with wires behind it. And uh, for us, it's really much we see a lot of people that believe in look, managed services should live in the cloud. And those people tend to be on the forefront of wanting to try out AI powered features. So they believe in you know, turn, having a transcription and uh, being able to map sentiment as opposed to getting into kind of the, the arguments around wiretapping laws and call recording laws and things like that. Those are not the types of conversations that I would say like many of our customers are, 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 are pushing. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Well, that, I think that's a pretty, the third, a third, a third is an interesting accomplishment, really. I mean, to build software that can serve the enterprise and small business at the same time is a real challenge. I've, I've dabbled in that a little bit. And uh, again, this goes beyond, you know, the, uh, the AI focus, but the just raw number of features and configurations. And, you know, next thing you know, you're kind of, how do we not become Salesforce while we try to meet all these different customer requests? And at the same time, you need something that's really intuitive for small businesses who don't need, you know, or want any of that stuff. You know, I guess one thesis I've had, and you, you, I think you've largely addressed it so far with just disciplined product development, but I've had the idea that a lot of that complexity maybe gets smoothed over over the next year or two with natural language interface. Like maybe everybody who has a crazy, complicated platform can start to go down market because they can, you know, hide 17 menus and say, you know, what do you want to do and just translate the user need into configuration on their own platform as appropriate. Does that seem realistic to you, even if it's not maybe your most pressing problem relative to other software platforms? Yeah, I actually agree with you on that. And I think, you know, what the, the interesting thing of, you know, I think one of the unique opportunities for large language models actually is putting them on top of analytics. And you think of business intelligence platforms today, because as much as we're a communications platform, as I said, like, the stuff that got me really excited at this to tie this back is, hey, if you want to go power communication on any channel, 
we want to go understand it in real time. So let's go capture it, transcribe it. And once we have it transcribed, well, now it's in a text format. We can do all sorts of things with it. And if you put a large language model on top of that, you suddenly have this robust analytics platform. And if you think about building an analytics platform today or even a database, you need a bunch of filters to go and search things, right? And so that creates a lot of complexity. Everyone wants different filters. They want their data in different ways. And to me, one of the biggest opportunities now is you can put a conversational search interface on top of analytics. And that, to your point, streamlines the complexity of the software you need to build, simplifies the experience that users go and have, and I think really starts to unlock the potential of like this last, you know, I call it like the last offline data set, which is these conversations. So you're really excited thinking about that, try to, you know, kind of tying it back to what you're saying. But yes, I think there's actually a simplification that happens. And um, you know, we naturally think of simplification coming from the SMB market as opposed to the enterprise market, but I do think that's something that's going to start to play out. Okay, cool. So could you give me a little bit better sense of how, when I signed up, you know, there was the list of 10 possible, you know, departments and roles. Um, and so I wasn't quite clear on like just how broadly the software gets deployed within an organization or kind of, you know, maybe it gets deployed very widely, but there's, you know, pe certain people that are the real in their hour by hour users. Like, am I right to believe And I have kind of some big questions in mind that I think depend on this answer. How much of it is like the sales and customer support versus like the whole organization? Yeah, I would say probably the fastest growing segment of our business is providing that unique this communications and AI for sales and support organizations. That said, the vast majority of those customers of that, you know, if you take those 30,000 customers are deployed across the internal communications. And as I said, our friendly competitors are, you know, to, to, to actually put it out there and, and clarify for folks are going to be the teams, Microsoft teams, Zoom, ring centrals of the world. Uh, and then when you get into the sales and service side, the five, nine and uh, eight by eight and talk desks of the world. Um, but as I said, the nice part about our business, you know, as I said, is, is we sell into these three segments. We also sell this one consolidated piece of software that can support these different users. So we might be deployed just on a sales organization, or we might be deployed just within a service organization. But that gives us, again, these kind of upsell opportunities to go and demonstrate the value of a unified communications platform, the power of AI, and then go talk to them about the internal communications that are there. But the vast majority of our customers, you know, my long-winded answer is vast majority of us are deploying us across the organization. And then different they're leveraging different features depending on, you know, the persona or the use case that they have. Gotcha. Okay. So for the power users, how much of their time on a given day would you say is like in the dial pad? UI versus tasks where they sort of have no choice but to leave the the dial pad experience to go do something else. Service and support, they can live in that application. As I said, you know, if you think of a contact center agents probably sitting there waiting for, you know, taking inbound calls. Uh, we've got integrations with, you know, all sorts of the 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 CRMs that they would go and have, Zendesk. HubSpot, Salesforce to go pro go pull information and provide them with the record information they would go that they would need or help them drive assistance from those conversations. But the intention is, you know, the way that we use Dialpad internally is that's our internal communication platform, and that's also what our sales and support teams are using. So 
I, I look here, I'm like, that app is loaded for me up in my browser window, uh, front and center, you know, my entire workday. Um, but as I said, there's always going to be these other interfaces that I need to go and engage with. But we want to make this the single destination to go and power the communications when you need to have it, video meeting, personal phone call, you know, a business phone call, and then to go and pull the contextual information that you need from different integrations or workflows, whether that's, again, from from systems of records or from ticketing systems, whatever it might be. Yeah, so it sounds like you're developing your own version of kind of the rag uh paradigm as well like access into even broader knowledge bases than sales and support and ai question answering all that kind of stuff i imagine is um on your mind it is yeah you, yeah i mean yeah you think about recruiting right so you think about opportunity kind of these tangential markets that open up where you know recruiting organizations or just recruiters um, you and I need to have a con maybe, you know, you're interviewing for a role and I need to make sure I'm asking the right topics and doing that in a consistent manner. We can help guide that conversation. So there's everybody that's doing the interview is asking the same questions to, to the same person, but we can go capture those responses and then write them into greenhouse, um, you know, for example, which would be a, a, a CRM or a system of record charts for recruiting organizations or recruiters to go and leverage. But Again, it's really about, hey, we want to go power those communications wherever they're happening and then starting to provide either context to the user or start to automate tasks and workflows that stem from those conversations. Okay, cool. Um, let's take, change topic for a second and then switch back to more practical, um, you know, closer to the user, more uh, ex product experiential things in a minute. So I saw that you just announced not too long ago the creation of this Dialpad GPT large language model, which has been trained on, and I'm just reading from the, the blog post, 5 billion minutes of business calls and online interactions. The world's first business-focused LLM. 5 billion minutes is a lot of calls. Uh, I guess for starters, like, you know, I'm translating that in my head to 500 billion tokens, if I'm thinking just 100 words a minute of conversational speech. That becomes, you know, 5% of GPT-4 training scale if I, you know, I'm triangulating effectively here. So that's, that's pretty big. I guess, you know, a bunch of questions around that. Like, where does all that data come from? Is that just stuff that's been recorded in the platform over time? And then, you know, how did you actually undertake the, the project of creating your own language model? I imagine, you know, pot potentially some partnership involved or... Yeah. So, so one thing is, so we had started a, a startup called Talk IQ, and that was one of the first real-time speech recognition engines back in 2016. And at that time, you know, give a little bit of context to, 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 to the listeners is at that time, if you were going to go do transcription, you would typically go capture, capture a conversation, you know, wave file or an MP3 file, you go put it through a third party, typically take you, you know, if your, if your conversation is 30 minutes, it's going to take you 30 minutes before you get an output back. Um, so there's this big delay. And we thought there was this really interesting opportunity, especially for sales and support conversations to say like, look, if, if you can go capture and, and, and build a streaming engine and understand a conversation in real time, well, then I can start to route a conversation, you know, based on what Nathan might be asking about. I can start to map a sentiment in real time. I can start to guide a, a person. I can do live agenda tracking, like all these opportunities open up. So we got really, really excited about that opportunity. Um, so we built a real-time speech recognition. We started to leverage uh, some open source software, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they say, hey, we're, we're building something from the ground up, you 
kind of to start with, there's fantastic open source software out there. So we started with Caldi, which was a model for speech recognition and build this fantastic, this really accurate, fine-tuned model to go and do long-form conversations. And I say long-form meaning when you do a phone conversation, that's very different than when you talk to Google and Siri and say, you know, what's the weather or you know, set a timer. And these were really complex, difficult challenges, you know, just roughly a decade ago, which is kind of funny to, to think about. So we built this engine. And then when you're building a startup, what you need is distribution. And so Dialpad at that time was, as I said, a really broad communications platform. Their founding team came out of Google. They had built Google Voice. And so it was a really kind of peanut butter and jelly moment to, to use an analogy of, hey, we can go understand the conversations. And you got the distribution of power in the conversations. And over those years, as I said, I've been here now for five, for five and a half years. Um, when people leverage our platform, they can opt in to share that data. And these are all long form convers business conversations or enterprise conversations. And the vast majority of them are sales and support related. And so that becomes this fantastic training set for us. Again, that people opt into. We are not, when we leverage the data, we obviously anonymize it, strip of any personal identifiable information, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when we started to then you know, I, th I think the world got enamored a year ago of kind of large language models, fortunately, by ChatGPT. And so we were really quick at saying, look, this is the, the, suddenly this great opportunity. We got this training set, we go power these communications, and we put this large language model on top of it, like all these opportunities open up. But these foundational models have some challenges with them. Um, capacity, uh, you talked about token limits. So if you think about a transcript, initially, you would have to go break up a transcript six different times. And you know, if you even, it, it, that creates challenges even to start to do things like to do summaries. Um, and so it became, you know, the challenges for these foundational models for us were capacity, uh, the token limits, latency, you know, how quickly were we going to get an output back, cost. Um, and those challenges were things that we didn't think we could wait for. They're all engineering problems that get you know resolved over time. And so what we did was actually focus on building our own large language model. And so there's two ways that we've approached that. One is, so you take fantastic open source software, you fine tune it. Fortunately for us, as I said, we've been at this for, for some time. We've got a bunch of experts and everybody from uh, conversational neuroscience to linguistics, we do our own labeling. Uh, they know how to build these models and they have the data set and they know how to do it. And then we're also working on building our own large language model from the ground up. And when I say large language model, it's ultimately a smaller language model that's going to be sp built specifically for specific industries and use cases. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. So you're doing this training in-house, like you're managing your own cloud. I would have guessed that you were partnered with like a mosaic or something like that to get over the, you know, the gnarly parts of the large scale pre-training. Yeah, we do everything in-house. We have our own GPU hardware. So we have got our own capacity for A100s. And the nice part for us is we do all the bare metal. So even our telephony platform, what's unique for us is because when then to tie this back to like the world of communications, a lot of people, when they think about building a communications platform today, think about old Twilio as a CPaaS provider. Of, hey, there's APIs to go power, you know, voice and messaging. So why go build that yourself? I mean, for us, uh, we think that the best businesses verticalize their stack. You can see that in in different industries, whether it's with Apple, you know, now building on silicon. You can see it in the automotive industry with, with businesses like Tesla. 
But I think the biggest uniqueness that comes from owning your stack is obviously the pace of innovation um, and then cost advantages at scale. And those, those two things allow you to actually bring, I think, uniqueness and better markets or, or better products to the market faster than anybody else. And so again, I think, I don't know if we would make always the same decisions that we have in the past um, if we were to start a startup today, but based on the proprietary data set we had, the people that, that know how that you have and the team of experts, we've done a lot of this in-house. That doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we do partner with, with OpenAI uh, to leverage the foundational models in certain aspects of our business. We also partner with Google, for, uh, leveraging Google for text, which is one of our Bison, which is one of their large language models today to power some features as well. So we do plug in some partners in different places, but the vast, vast, vast majority of things we do is all done in-house. Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd love to hear. How, this is, I think, such a big challenge for so many, right? To know kind of what to build, what to buy, what to partner for in a world where things are moving extremely fast. And I think you, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by your answer. And I think it, you know, it's it's a flex because most, maybe not most, but certainly I think a lot of companies out there might say, oh, you know, let's uh, llama too, you know, we're, let's save money or let's, you know, own our stack or combination of the two, whatever, let's go, we'll fine tune that, you know, we'll, we'll be, you know, we'll control our own destiny and whatever. And then it's like, but if you don't have a real skill set and kind of a knack for it, right. And there's, there's multiple different critical components, I would say to the skill set from, especially if you're doing large scale stuff from scratch, managing a cluster to kind of, you know, OpenAI recently described it as the artisanal process of shaping language model behavior. Um, and it seems like I, I would expect so many companies that may be great at what they do to try to add on this type of discipline and sort of get bogged down in it. And next thing you know, like OpenAI has kind of released their next version before you've made, you know, Llama 2 really work. Um, so do you have, is it is it about just the team that you guys had already assembled that you think is just differentiated? Or do you have strategies that you could recommend for how to avoid falling into that trap? Because I do think a lot of people are headed that direction if they try to follow your specific path. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why I say, you know, even here, I try to be really keen on this stuff is I think, you know, fortunately, because of the decisions we made in the past, and it's been kind of fun to see how this has played out. I don't always know if we would make this same decision, you know, starting from scratch. So some of that is, you know, we have a team of experts that's been in these fields for working with these technologies for 10 plus years, uh, just at the forefront of building product. But a lot of the people on our team, you know, we've got you know, over a team of 50 focused on AI, uh, 18 PhDs. We've got 16 patents. We show up at the best NLP conferences in the world and win awards for the models that we're building in development. So some of it, I think much like anything, it always comes back to the team of experts that you have and the access to the data set that you can go and leverage. So as I said, because of those two things of that decision, you know, six years ago for Dialpad to be focused on AI then has played out nicely to position us today. That gives us, I think, some advantages over relying on a third-party API to go and do things. And, you know, when that that when ChatGPT, you know, was given us some excitement, you know, two weeks ago, I can tell you we were probably one of the few businesses that 
were, I say unconserved, we, we were all, you know, following this, with, you know, because I thought it was just a really interesting business, that business thing that was going on. But we were probably one of the few businesses that was like, hey, this doesn't impact us. Like, we're not worried about whether our summarization is going to go down because the company may, may cease to exist overnight. Um, we don't rely on them to do that. Um, and so again, I think that always why, you know, as a, as a technologist, why it's always to me, I do believe in like control your own destiny, that innovation, like that's where you're going to really win or lose markets. Um, and don't, I say outsource, but you know, for lack of a better word that, that that's eluding me, but don't outs don't outsource what you think are the, the, the most important parts of your business. And I think right now I do believe, and I know it sounds a little bit generic given the, you know, the, everything in the news and so forth, but. I do believe that AI is the biggest opportunity. And so um, I think there is a better experience, more cost-effective experience is because we are a business that you can do by doing that yourselves. But that comes with a bunch of landmines and a bunch of challenges, and it's not easy for sure. Yeah. What do you think businesses should prioritize most? I mean, we there, you kind of talked about a few different values there where there's almost always trade-offs, right? You've got on the one hand, what's the absolute best performance that I could get, you know, if I don't worry about latency or, you know, financial cost, then there's like, you know, if I put some constraints on those, then what's the best I can get? And then there's like, you know, now how much would I trade off that performance for, you know, further improvement in latency and cost? I think even that decision-making structure is really tough for a lot of folks. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty unfamiliar territory, just given the new, you know, just traits of this technology. I mean, it's like, it's weird, right? It's, it's definitely slower than most software we're used to. It's more expensive, uh, you know, on the margin than most software we're used to probably on in both of those by like orders or can be orders of magnitude, um, obviously can do, you know, tremendously more stuff than most software we're used to. But do you have, you have kind of any coaching for how people should think about, those relative dimensions of like of the good in their AI product development. Yeah, and I can give you you know this is our matrix. I think obviously it depends on the business that you're in. So well, I'll start with we have a matrix around that. Number one is latency, um, and what I mean by that is we think the biggest opportunity for our business is how can we do things in real time for a conversation. What I mean by that is you know if we were going to go, um, we do things like agent assist, so we can like information from a knowledge base presented to a user in real time in terms of like milliseconds of latency. If that assist card didn't show up for three seconds, it, it loses its utility even a second later. And if it's 10 seconds, there's just no point in even building that feature. So everything when we talk about always starts with the most innovative features, the most interesting things we can do have to be as close to real time as possible. So that means latency really um, two is then how do we get these features? If you can go do that in real time, how can you get them in the hands of as many people as possible? And so that, again, comes back to the question of like capacity um, and what's available from these large language models. And those are still challenges today for a lot of these models, which is like at what scale can they operate, right? Or, or can you get them? Um, and then the third is cost. Now, I think cost is one of those things that you can solve over time if you're really providing value to a user then you can always get the additional the additional cost or price that you need to cover, kind of uh, maintain your margins or improve your margins, whatever it might be. And margins tend to improve over time, as I said, you can always optimize that. So the cost piece tends to be, you know, third on the list. You know, there's other things, but to give you the way we think about it, like 
cost is not the blocker for us. Like we're, we've raised, you know, a half a billion dollars in venture from the best investors in the world, Andreessen Horowitz, Google Ventures, Iconic Capital, just to name a few. And we think there's just this unique moment in time to drive innovation. And so let's really focus on like the latency piece, because that's going to provide the best experience and get in the hands of as many people as possible and worry about the cost later. And if you're an earlier stage startup that is more capital constrained, then you know, cost might be a number one of that list. Yeah, interesting. So then how do you think about performance in terms of just like the quality of the insights or, you know, whatever the task is? Because I have mostly thought about now, I haven't really done anything in this sort of highly real time way that, you know, and that I totally appreciate the rapid depreciation of a tip, you know, that uh, once a moment is passed, it's passed. So totally get that. I haven't operated in that environment. But my intuition in most of the things that I've built has been try to maximize the quality of the AI output first. Um, subject to, you know, it does it even if it takes three minutes, you know, in terms of latency, then that can can start to be a deal breaker. You know, again, it depends on exactly how much better, you know, the best configuration or the best model might be relative to my alternative. But do you get do you think of it in terms of like we want to get above some threshold of utility and then then we focus on all these other things or how, how does that kind of fit in? Yeah, so let me, yeah, so I'll refrain my answer of assuming that you are pleased with the output of accuracy. And so when we build models, there's two ways. Is obviously we do come up with thresholds of what we think are going to provide quality output and utility. Two is we all dog these these the, the, these features ourselves, meaning our support team goes and leverage and sales team leverages the models that we build along with every one of our employees. If we don't think it's it's providing utility as a good feature, then there's no way that we would expect anybody ever to go and pay us for it. So it starts there. And then the other part is when, you know, and I think this gets skipped by businesses or kind of not thought about is the feedback loop for users, which is one, labeling anything that's AI generated. Um, and then two is providing that feedback loop for users to say, hey, this recommendation was good or bad, or this summary was good and bad, or the identification of this, this action item was good or bad, whatever it might be. And those are things that I think are intrinsically really important for this and having that feedback loop to get back to the teams. We're fortunately always also on a, a biweekly release schedule meeting every two weeks. Um, so when we talk about tuning our models and making adjustments, we are constantly looking at that data, um, going back, redeploying models. Um, and again, there's that constant feedback loop to go and make sure that there's both utility and function in it. Um, and I think that has to be obviously, you know, as I said, if I was to reframe my answer, like, hey, assume that you're doing the right things and like building an accurate model that provides utility, then we're focused on like these parts around latency, you know, capacity and then cost. Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Yes. Omnikey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omnikey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Definitely more art than science uh, still at this point. And, you know, I think we're kind of in this, this moment where Again, the dynamics are just changing so quickly. I've noticed in my own fine-tuning work, which I've mostly done on the OpenAI platform, and the reasons for that are interestingly also starting to change. Like it used to be because I couldn't match the performance anywhere else, and it was kind of simple as that. Now, 
I would say it's pretty reasonable to expect that I could match a 3.5 fine tuned for my use case, which this is at Waymark. You know, we do essentially video script writing and related tasks. And I think I could probably match the 3.5 fine tuning with not like a huge amount of effort on top of a, you know, mixed role or whatever the case may be. But now the better reason for me to stay with the OpenAI is that there are like pricing actually works out more favorably for us. Uh, and, the, and the hosting is just much simpler, like the managed hosting relative to having to you know work with other platforms to provision dedicated instances and so on. Uh, you know, and some of those like really don't have much in the way of auto scaling yet at all. Now it's like on that other dimension that that they're kind of ahead. And you bring up like auto scale, like these are all things that we have to go through, right? And, and again, communication platform, there's different demands, sorry to interject and there's different demands, right? You, you can imagine like a, a meetings. Uh, well, guess when meetings pop up? Top of the outer, top of the hour, bottom of the hour, right? Those are the two spikes. So even just having auto scaling on a communications platform for all of these things that you know, most people are not starting their meeting at, you know, 1117. Uh, um, on those pieces. But these are all, you know, as I said, it's important to have this stack and to have these controls and capabilities. You know, we're, as I said, many of us are, are, are former Googlers. And so we're obviously at Google Clouds. And these are all of the things that come into play of auto scaling and doing that scale for sure. Cool. Okay. So let's go back to kind of product and, you know, practical user experiences a little bit. You want to just run down the kind of most common, maybe most loved AI features and experiences that you are powering today. And, you know, maybe we can kind of start to get into some that are emerging as well. Yeah, most loved, obviously, real-time transcription. We do a summary on top of those conversations, which I think the world is suddenly becoming enamored with, you know, instantly summarized blocks of text. Uh, but we do some cool, really cool things with summarized text. And so you imagine a, a support and sales conversation, we can go label the purpose and the outcome of those conversations. So suddenly you can take unstructured data, made it structured, Previously, people would go and have label literally people in their contacts and would go review calls, you know, tag this stuff. Uh, the agent assist features, as I said, which is like, hey, my first job was in a contact center. Uh, and I was terrified of the first conversation I was going to get because I was like, what is this person going to ask me? Uh, and so again, being able to guide people and pull information and present it to them the moment that they need it. Um, and then the last one that I would highlight are, are things that are I think the perfect application of AI, which is we can infer customer satisfaction from conversations. And you think of what happens for, you know, in, a, in the support world is you and I have this conversation, you know, at the end of it, you send me a survey and you're like, hey, Dan, what was your experience? And I'll tell you, I'm like, Nathan, either it was really good or really bad. Like those are the only, you know, the, the two people you kind of hear from. And so for us, it was like, hey, look, we can go infer customer satisfaction with really high accuracy. We can do it across every conversation. There's no change in behavior and there's no new software that needs to happen. And you get you know, 100x volume of the data that you're getting, so it's much more representative. Um, and so these are just a few of the things, as I said, that we're working on, but we're really focused on how do we go capture these conversations? And then as I said at the beginning of our, our, our chat, really focused on delivering features that are focused on assistance, automation, and then telling you things that are happening to help you make better business decisions. Of, of the stuff that the AI does today, how much of it would you say in the absence of AI gets done by a human versus simply doesn't get done at all? Like presumably, if, you, if there was no AI transcription, very few of these calls would be transcribed, right? And 
but but maybe many would be summarized. You know, how how do you kind of think about how much is this um, doing work that otherwise wouldn't have happened versus you know taking work off of humans' plates? Yeah, I th I think about it in two ways. One is what happens is you get into like the crazy world of quality assurance, and I say crazy world, and that and that you see me smiling and laughing as they say in like the nicest way possible. But it is what happened before even transcriptions was people are listening to sitting down. You know, if you're in a contact center, sitting next to Nathan, listening to the call, and then making sure that you're following the process and you're handling things in a friendly manner. So, one is like the stuff's even happening. It's it's either happening today, and there's not even a record of it, um, or two, it's happening and it's really, really, really time intensive. Meaning, somebody's probably not even providing the transcript or taking the notes, but they're saying, hey, here's the scorecard in the rubric, and I'm giving Nathan a grade to say whether he's doing a good or bad job. Or you get into like the legal world, right? Or somebody may want a record of a conversation, whatever it might be, uh, or a doctor's office, um, right? Somebody's probably sitting there, maybe taking notes, or the doctor's taking notes. So I think, honestly, our application of the things that we're focused on are these mundane tasks that I think are really ripe for AI to actually do it. Transcription accuracy is, is near human levels. As I said, it's kind of everyone's, you know, a lot of businesses are in the same realm of kind of 90, 90% plus accuracy. Uh, and then you get into this land of, hey, we've got, uh, we can go summarize that information and structure it in really fantastic ways. And I think there are immense opportunities to either go and completely automate tasks or augment the tasks in really fantastic ways to free up people. Just as an aside on the transcription, have, are you still using the original stack that you created some years ago there? That's all been whisperified at this point? That is, but yeah. So we do, so all of that still we do in house for, re, and, and, you know, I'll share a little context on that. We're on NVIDIA Nemo Toolkit, is our latest models. Uh, and again, when you talk about telephony, there's different codecs. And so everything is fine tuned for the codecs that we go and leverage and use. And so, really high transcription accuracy. And when you're talking about, you know, driving automation assistance and insights, you keep hearing me say those three things to kind of ingrain it in people. Transcription accuracy becomes the foundation of all of that. And, you know, you've probably, you know, I've had, I, I listened to so some of the other, you know, podcasts and people will talk about kind of garbage in, garbage out on data. But um, there's always that argument that comes up from investors or analysts around, look, like, isn't speech recognition in ARSR, ARSR isn't that just a commoditized you know, commoditized technology. And I'm like, I don't think so. Um, I think we're a long way from solving that problem when you get into accents and words that don't show up in the dictionary and proximity to microphone, you know, all sorts of all sorts of complex challenges around it. But that to me is the foundation for all of this, that if you can't accurately transcribe information, then everything else goes out the window. And again, that's why we recognize that and think it's important to go and have a, an in-house speech recognition team. And I'm and build those models and fine tune those models again for for our network of telephony. Yeah, interesting. The the codec aspect to that is um, it's always a lot of little nuances once you really get into the weeds on these things. Yeah, people will come to you and say, "Hey, that you know they'll see a bench, you know, much like anything." And benchmarkings always have caveats and nuance too. And I always encourage people to 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 understand that, which is. You may see a benchmarking report of a business that's, that does speech recognition and says, you know, they have the highest accuracy. And it all comes down to, well, what training set was that? And is what network was that on? Uh, there's all these things that matter around the codex. And so 
for us, as I said, is we have the best accuracy on our codex and telephony network. So there's nuance. And that's not us saying, you know, we're not a provider of speech recognition for somebody to, as an API. So somebody can't go take our models and plug them in on the T-Mobile or Verizon network or AT, you know, whatever it might be. And that matters. And I think it's important for people to understand um, the context of these decisions and the context of, of these benchmarks. Yeah, interesting. How much do you personalize? I guess you could either you could customize to the level of the customer, or you could personalize down to the level of like the customer's customer. And I wonder how much of those two levels of, and I guess you could even you know do it in multiple ways, right? This could be you know context management at the prompt level of you know here's a profile of this business or a profile of the customer. You could go into a rag setup, you can go into fine tuning. How do you think about, you know, I, I guess I'm just thinking these tips, right? Like tip pops up, obviously that's gotta be specific. It's certainly gotta be specific to the business, right? It can't just be like general, you know, try to smile more. Maybe it even needs to be often specific to the individual and customer too. So yeah, personalization, tell us everything. We start with custom models for every, for, so custom models for every customer. Um, and so that is the ability for them to go and fine tune the, the speech recognition model they would have. And I always go back to, look, there's going to be us in, in startup and SaaS land. We tend to come up with acronyms that are new. We come up with funky spellings of product names to be unique. Uh, so you, those tend to be the most important things to a business, right? Or, or the uniqueness of those products or the, those acronyms. And so, again, it comes back to you need to accurately transcribe them. Where we want to get to. Uh, we would like to get down to, hey, Nathan, if, if we're providing, if, you're a, if your business is a customer of Dialpad, we would like to provide Nathan his own model for himself. And I always go back to, you think of somebody that has a name like Sarah, and there's multiple ways to go and, 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 and spell that. You want to piss somebody off really well is show them a transcription or a summarization and summarize their name wrong every single time they see it. And so those are things that we're working on. We don't have that problem solved today. But again, these are all of the challenges that start to pop up at scale. And you bring up two interesting points is, well, if you're a customer, can we then go and build another model for the customers that we're leveraging your platform for? Or can I start to have a, a unique model for the individual employees that might be you know, leverage it, re leveraging the piece of software? So those are all still opportunities for us that we haven't solved. I don't think anyone has you know, solved it at those levels. But when we think about like, where do we want to get to and what are the annoyances that show up in this stuff? Those are the very real annoyances that show up. Just thinking about transcribing somebody's name. Yeah. If you're doing this at home, um, one very practical tip that I have, which I don't think would work at your scale, but um, works for me when I'm just processing podcast transcripts, for example, is to take a raw transcript and then run it through a language model to kind of clean it. And at the top, I'll just be like, here are all the proper nouns that you need to know to clean this up so that you know you get the company names right and, and all that sort of thing. Again, that works at low scale. I don't mind uh, you know dropping it could be like a dollar you know on on Claude or whatever to do that. Um, not going to work for you at uh, at the scale of all your your customers, you know many many calls. But how much data do they need to do this sort of customization? Like, is there is there a rule of thumb of you need you know X hours of speech? And I, I assume that you know they need ground truth as well of the you know the correct transcript of those inputs. 
yeah, the hours I need, I don't have the number of hours I can, I'll ping our, I'll ping my co-founder and uh, get you the hours, but there's, there is a limit to say, look, and, and this always comes up for customers, you know, to put it in, in relevant aspects of people, you know, we have to go, we have customers all around the world. And so somebody will say, Hey, we want to go have transcription in a language we don't have today. And so then we need to go and find the audio from that and make sure that there's enough to go and do it. And to your point on the ground tooth, this all stemmed from our first startup was when we were building Talk IQ, we had to go build our own telephony platform. We had to go build our own speech recognition. We had to go build our own NLP and we had to go build the tools at that time to even do it, which was how do we go capture the audio, literally start to create kind of 15 second clips of the audio and then build these tools that our labelers could go through to say, okay, you need to start by accurately listening to this 15 second clip. I need the ground truth, which is go and transcribe it. Uh, somebody has to make sure then that is accurate because that's a, it's a tedious task at scale. And then we have to go, as I said, is take those and then go and build the models and improve the models from it. So these are all of the very real challenges that, as I said, you know, because we have this this past experience, fortunately, kind of went through or faced with those those problems kind of back then. And as I said, much of that has been solved today. And, and, and you know, different startups have showed up to go and even build tools to do it. Yeah, I'm struck as I'm listening to that description that it seems like it's probably gotten an order of magnitude more efficient, even just to set that up, right? Because now, you know, there's the Facebook model, for example, that supports like a thousand languages or something. So it may not be up to your standard on language 900, but it probably saves 90% of the time of, you know, having to go hire somebody on Upwork to get started. It does. And we do, and you, and you do kind of hacks around it, right? Which is, so, you know, you showed up today and you may say, Hey, maybe you want to have Dutch. I um, mean, we would say, oh, we don't have Dutch today. And so what we could go and do is we could go plug in, you know, Google Files speech. We could go plug in Lex, uh, Lex Speechmatics, you know, DeepGram, like Whisper, you name it. And you assume if like, again, it goes back to like where we started the conversation, he made sure like who's going to get you the best accuracy on the codec that you have. Uh, so we would go and do that. And then that becomes training data for us, right? So suddenly as people just use the platform and they opt in the data, then that helps us over time go and say, we can then go and do this ourselves and reduce costs and improve accuracy faster than a third party. So those are all like the very real things that we go through. And there are times we would take that approach and there are times that we would potentially plug in a third party and just let it be. And that usually stems from, you know, thinking about the opportunities from the business, which is like, hey, this language might not be in high demand. So we never, you know, we're okay with the pass-through costs of just using a third party for it. First, like, hey, this is that you know there are very real opportunities for us at scale to go and do this in-house. How about on the content generation side? In my limited free trial, you know, I didn't have enough content in the platform to kind of really see how that can work. But obviously, this is another thing that has to be customized, uh, you know, to really be useful. And I've done some experiments trying to get. AI to write as me haven't quite got out of the uncanny valley yet. I'm sorry to say. Uh, how are you guys doing in terms of generating content? How do you think about measuring how well you're doing? And uh, you know, then I'll then I'll project into the future. I guess from there. Yeah, we're we're early on that. So as I said, like kind of when we think about like content generation as a, as a communications platform, we think the easiest thing is like reply. You know, re generating a reply. You know 
you and I have a conversation and, and one thing that we've kind of noodled on is, hey, can I go send me in the summary? And if I send you the summary, then I want to have an email that accompanies it. And can we go auto draft the email based on, the, again, the context of the conversation we just had? I tend to have like similar opinions to you of this, this valley that you're in where I'm like, I think there's some utility there, but is it more trouble than it's worth? I use ChatGPT for go write me first drafts of blog posts, you know, as a starting point for things. Um, so I do think there's utility and some 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 opportunities there when we get into content generation. We're still early in exploring that, but I also kind of have this uncanny thing of like, I don't know, for things like email responses, you know, for example, is that you know, is it really worth the time? I mean, is it really going to provide a ton of value for people? Or are they going to end up just customizing it themselves and writing it? You know, as you start to engage with a large language model, you suddenly realize that you spent as much time as you would just drafting, just drafting a two sentence, you know, and sending it off. That ultimately comes down to just how good the generations are, though, right? Like it's um, this is a this seems like a very dynamic situation. Like I I have not got it to work on. I guess I haven't even really tried it with GPT 3.5 as much as I probably could have. I've been kind of holding off to try fine-tuning GPT-4 on my own writing to see how close I can get it. You know, presumably if you could fine-tune GPT-4 on a decent body of business correspondence for a business, you would probably, you know, you may not be uh, writing, you know, love letters to partners or, you know, taking over corporate strategy, but presumably you could like get pretty high acceptance rates on like routine communication, I would think, right? I think you're probably right. I don't, you see my hesitancy. I don't know if I'm like bought into that, like meaning like the the general utility, like I think there's a ways to, I think there, we're still a ways off from this stuff. And I, and I generally think and I, and I say this meaning, I think there are gen, there are very real opportunities for large language models. And I think what will still play out this this next year is I still think we have a ways to go. Um, and I think they're going to do some really some things really broadly, really well. And we're still going to need the next level of development to start doing things that are really going to seamlessly work and be like the next wow factor shows up. And I just think like this is one of those examples where I'm like, I do a lot of, as I said, like content generation today, and I'm always like, it's a great first draft. It's a great starting point. And I think about putting those features in our in our app and potentially charging for them. And I'm like, I don't know if that's that's the the like the wow factor feature that we should go in with. I think that it's like a quality of life feature to say like, hey, end a call. We can go generate this amazing recap and structure it. And I'm like, do I need to have the auto-generated email to go along with it? Like, it's a couple sentences. And is it really going to do it that well? And is that where we should be spending, you know, our product and engineering time? And there are different competitors in the space. Like Teams is very much focused on that with Copilot. You know, Zoom does that a little bit with like AI Companion. And I'm just like, I don't know if I'm, com- I don't know if I'm personally convinced on that use case yet. And especially one that you might potentially charge. I just think there's some extra development that needs to happen. And to your point, that might be like, hey, there's a bunch of fine tuning that you individually need to then go and do. And then you think about, well, how do you do that at scale for a user? And once that that user doesn't know, these are just the things that pop up. Sounds great. But you're like, okay, so then you want every user to hop into your app and suddenly do fine tuning to customize the emails. Well, actually, that's one of the big reasons I thought this conversation was so interesting is because in looking at Dialpad, I've been kind of thinking, 
this feels kind of like the gym that is both capturing the data of what people do incompletely, and maybe there's a little caveat we can discuss there, but definitely capturing a lot of what people do, especially in these you know sales and marketing roles that are the most kind of intensive users. And then also the dial pad environment seems like a very natural place in which to deploy and evaluate and ultimately refine an AI agent because you've kind of got the scope, you know, the possibility of like what are, are the actions are like, you know, much more clearly defined than if you're just like, oh, go use, you know, a computer or go use, you know, the web at large. I guess what do you, you know, there's a bunch of different questions here, but if it's not there yet, you know, or if like the next generation of, you know, model quality is not going to take us to, you know, even, I mean, you're saying like maybe not even on like email drafting, but I'm thinking even a little farther than that, like virtual AI employees that may start limited, but can hopefully like get in there and actually advance your work for you. What do you think is missing that would stand in the way of that happening in 2024? Well, I think it, it, uh, I'll get to, to take like a small little tangent and, and tie things back. Like the content generation piece to me, like the part that, that excites me and I think is the higher utility on that. It's like understanding like the recommended next best step or automated workflow that somebody should take. And what I mean by that is because you tied into, hey, we can go understand these conversations and we're tied into a CRM and a database so we know the outcome, which is if I'm using specific language in a conversation and that language leads to a more positive outcome for the business, then the next time we see that conversation happening for a different person, we should you know, highlight to them, hey, here's the right course of action that obviously takes it. So when I think of the content generation, it's more around generating content around here's the next best action, as opposed to me thinking about content generation of like, you know, here's the email, here's the email, right, to go and write. Okay, well, let me, uh, let me keep pushing you to think uh, a little farther into the future. I feel like if I imagine AI realizing its potential, a lot of sales and customer service ultimately ends up getting mediated by AI. And it's not that I'm like racing to replace people or, you know, cut costs or whatever, but I always kind of come back to sort of an, you know, a Bezos style, like what does the customer really want? Right. And the customer wants like immediate response 24 seven, like where I can pause the conversation where I want to at my convenience and be able to come back and pick it up, you know, right where I left off and maybe even switch modalities. And, you know, ChatGPT offers me all these things today. And it's like, you know, I had a conversation while driving this weekend about the new state space model moment that's happening. And I would say ChatGPT was, you know, maybe not the best conversation partner in my life, you know, possibly for that conversation, but certainly among them. And, you know, for many people who, you know, aren't as connected as maybe I am, like, probably is the best conversation partner that they could have. So do you think that I'm like wrong about that? Or, you know, going back to the, you know, the stats at the beginning, you have like third, 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 these small and medium sized businesses, the enterprises maybe, maybe don't have to go this way. But like a small business just can't staff the phones 24 seven, right? And can't like, pick up all the calls that are you try calling a local restaurant around here at a lunch rush. And it's like, they don't want to even answer, right? Just you just have to walk in and wait in line. Seems like there is like a qualitative change that can happen here. And 
you know, obviously it comes with a lot of potential disruption. I don't know. It seems like you're not, you're not buying that vision. I'm not sure if it's because you think that technology is not going to pan out or you just don't want to go there. Automating support, like doing digital deflection. I think like, like first generation chatbots have been like really good password reset bots. Um, obviously you can go put a large language model on a new chatbot and it's going to be able to handle much more complex requests and sound much more natural. Fully believe in that for support. And I would say, you know, you can go look, I think, you know, today probably 80% of people probably start engaging with a brand for support on a digital channel. So I think the very first thing they want to do is hey, they want to go out this next generation experience with a large language model, go get better answers, more natural sounding answers as quickly as possible. For sure. We're working on that. We believe, I believe wholeheartedly in that opportunity. This automated sales one, I don't, I don't, and when I say that, meaning like outbound sales and creating an outbound, because there's some startups working on this one, I don't know about that. And we had our, a couple of us had dinner with Mark Andreessen the other week. And Mark had mentioned that he has this idea at times that might be two bots that chat with each other. It's like the sales bot and the, you know, each of us have, Nathan has his own automated bot of him and understands, and I have my own that's selling. I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I personally think people like to buy from people. Uh, I also think when you think of like a support use case that, yeah, I want to engage with a digital bot, but the second I need to escalate that to a phone, I don't know if I want to talk to an automated voice bot. As, as, as good as that bot might be, I think there is when you're really frustrated about something, talking to a human and then you get into all sorts of things. Like, do you let somebody know whether that's a voice bot if it's so good and you've got speech synthesis and everything? And I don't know. And I, and I do think that it's going to take time. As I said, when I go back to the time thing, like I don't think that stuff shows up in 2024. And I know I've seen some really impressive demos. And at the end of the day, you're like, you can still tell. And so that's why I said, I don't think in the next year you suddenly have an experience where we're like, you can't tell. Maybe on a digital channel for sure, but not on a voice channel. Um, and I'm happy, as I said, I'm at, if somebody's got a really cool demo out there. So that, like, I would love to see it and play around and like for sure. But those are some things that that we do like. We spend some time thinking about as a communication platform of like, hey, does this automated sales agent show up, and does somebody want that? But I very much view it as like, hey, the next generation chatbot on a digital channel for sure. Instant answers, better answers, faster answers. Um, all of that stuff is like an immediate big opportunity for us. So what is your kind of 2025 and beyond uh, expectation? Like mine is pretty much that all this stuff does happen. I'm not as sure if we get like AI automated science, although even that is looking like increasingly likely, but definitely sort of AI mediated sales and support seems quite likely to me. Yes, I would agree. Like they are still kind of uncanny valley, even the chat GPT voices, you know, they don't handle interruptions very well. They don't handle my long pauses very well. And uh, so they start talking when I'm still trying to talk. I was looking back at the transcript with chat GPT and I'm like, stop interrupting me. I, I've known for my long pauses for God's sake. So, you know, they're not quite there. I would definitely agree with that. Um, I'm also a big supporter of the notion that I don't think we should have AIs deceiving people. So I don't even think we, even if it, it does sound, you know, fully human and could pass, I think we should probably, you know, either as responsible corporate, you know, uh, actors or as a government sort of say, you know, we're going to just be clear when you're talking to AI. Um, that seems healthy. 
But I don't know, you know, if it's good enough, I don't really think people will mind. And it, it does feel like the ability to respond immediately. And again, you know, drop the, you know, put the phone down for 10 hours and then come back and pick it up later after my kids go to bed when it's convenient for me, like, and seamlessly do that. You know, that seems so helpful, not to mention, you know, the ability to, to pass the cost on to the customer. Like, I guess you could think that, you know, even, you know, 20, pick your year, like, and I'm not saying like, I care exactly what your specific year is, but do you think it's so far off that it's just like, not really something that we need to be concerned with right now? Because if it's, you know, if it's not 2024, but it is 2025, like it's still very close. The the reason I have expressed that hesitancy, and I, and I think honestly, like we don't deal you with, know, there's going to be, you know, much more smarter and great people that, that will tell me it's faster and I'm, and I'm wrong. My experience with technologies has, has been similar to that trough of disillusionment. And I think, you know, I look at self-driving cars as a great example of this. We're now a decade into this journey. If you asked me a decade ago, based on whatever people have said, we would have figured this was a solved problem. And I think these things turn out when you really get into like the complexity of human language and the workflow, especially work and some of the complex workflows that we have every day, those turn out to be much more complex, harder problems in the real world. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't be really enamored and amazed by a demo or that there's not all of these little things that we do every day, mundane tasks that are ripe for audit, complete automation or experiences. But as an aggregate, I think it just is going to take more time. And I don't have I, I don't have a guess on time. If somebody said that with the 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 only thing I I I feel is when I think about a year and I'm like, look, I've been blown away by large language models and chat GPT and even just, you know, even just technology and drama over the past decade. I just have this inkling and this hesitancy that that it's going to take more time. And I hope I'm wrong. Uh, because as I said, as a, somebody that grew up in Silicon Valley and, and a technologist and somebody that just loves innovation, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but I have this sinking feeling, unfortunately, that it's going to be harder and more complex um, than we think. That's really interesting because I also kind of hope I'm wrong, but in the other direction, I, I feel like I see this coming at us so fast. What have you seen that, that, that you're like, this is it? Well, just, you know, broadly extrapolating the last two years, you know, just going back to literally two years ago today, and we're recording on December 19th, 2023. So December 2021, there still wasn't an instruction following model in the public. The state of the art for me at Waymark was fine-tuning GPT-3 and I think we had just gotten, we had moved from Curie scale to DaVinci scale. And that was like enough to create our first script writer that was, you know, like, okay, we, this will definitely be useful to our customers. Our use case is quite narrow compared to, you know, certainly the dial pad use case and, you know, certainly the broader agent challenge globally. But we have gone from couldn't get actual utility from it in late 2021 to it is a totally qualitatively different experience two years later. And that includes the script writing having gotten very good, the image understanding having also progressed by leaps and bounds such that we're now able to choose the appropriate image out of a user's image library with you know, pretty high consistency. The, the text-to-speech has also gotten dramatically better. 
again, it was not even two years ago, but probably one year ago that we went from, you know, hey, this just doesn't sound good. We, we partnered with media companies. So, and we do also sell direct to small business, but our kind of standard is would a media company that like owns TV stations or owns a cable network, would they put this on their air and, you know, feel like that is the kind of thing that isn't going to, you know, make people turn their TVs off, right? So, and it wasn't, you know, a year ago it wasn't. And now most of the stuff that we put on the air is AI voice. And it's not perfect, but, you know, all of these things have kind of gone from, 20, 30% of human to like 80, 90% of human in just this less than two year timeframe. And I don't think we're done. You know, we're, I look at our model and I'm like, I see actually a lot of low hanging fruit still where some of the techniques that we've developed for past generations were, are now like hurting us. You know, we've, we, we've, you know, tried to fit so much into so few tokens and whatever in the past. Now it's like, you know what we should really do is go back and look at that again. Cause like the tokens are a lot cheaper. The models can handle a lot more of them. To me, it's like, it's that it's always like that last mile and the complexity of that last mile, as you said, like I totally, and, it, and I go back to like the bad analogy of like the, the self-driving cars. Cause I live in San Francisco. So we have, uh, you know, Waymo cruising around all the time, you know, and doing, doing a good job. Uh, but that's not without issue. And so I, I, I think it always comes back to like, I agree with you. And it's that last mile, the piece of like, hey, we're 80, 70% of the way there. What does it really take to have like just that amazing, beautiful experience that, that you know, we're not going to know, you know, I hate to say like, not, and I'm not getting into like the AGI space, but just that's the piece that I, I just, I wonder, you know, I truly wonder whether that shows up and I hope so in the next couple of years, but I just have this, as I said, this hesitancy of like, maybe it's going to be harder than we think, but maybe, as I said, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly always false positives and negatives. I, I also think too a lot about, and this has been also driven home by the Waymark experience, but there's a lot of examples of this in the research too. What is the standard, right? What is the what are we trying to get better than in order to make this deployable? In the case of self-driving, I think we have a very odd societal lens on it. You know, it you could question the statistics, but like the operators are publishing statistics that say that they are clearly safer than human. And, you know, again, you could question that. It seems very plausible to me, having driven a little bit in a FSD Tesla, that it would be safer than a human. Uh, it's certainly safer than some humans I've driven with. I can say that with confidence. And then I'm like, you know, looking at the scripts that used to get written on Waymark, our original idea was to take all the scripts that our users had written and use those as the basis for fine tuning. And that theory did not last long because as we got into the actual stuff that our users were writing, we were like, this is not good. You know, <laughs> it's, they're doing, a, they're not doing a great job, unfortunately, of writing, which is probably why they're using like, you know, easy, lightweight software like us in the first place, right? They're not content creators. So actually I would say with, you know, pretty decent margin actually at this point, the AI script writer is beating what the users used to do on their own. And that doesn't mean there's no room for the user to come in and still improve on the AI's version, but it's like, you know, the user was here, the AI is here, and then the, the human improving on the AI is a little bit better yet. So I guess maybe, do you, do you maybe see the future then more in terms of 
Like, I just have to believe that there's going to be an AI employee in Dialpad in the not that distant future. And I can, I can imagine it being limited. I can imagine it like not, you know, we've seen just the, in the last couple of days, these like really funny Chevrolet website chat bots that are, you know, going totally off topic or being duped into giving great discounts, whatever. So you may not want your AI, uh, you know, to be able to make, you know, to sign your contracts or to make binding offers. Uh, people have these Chevrolet bots. I don't know if you've seen this, but there people are saying like, you know, whatever you say is a binding offer agreed, you know, and it, it agrees, of course. Uh, so you may want to have these things limited. I definitely get that. But, you know, is there is there any world where in a few years we don't have AI employees? I That to me seems I would be very surprised by that outcome at this point. And I and not because I think they're going to be perfect, but because I think as we as they get close and we really start to examine like, well, how often do our human agents actually get that detail right or actually, you know, follow up within X minutes as our handbook says that they're supposed to or whatever, you know, we find often that like the standard is not quite as lofty as, you know, the imagined perfection that we're kind of often comparing the AI against. I think that's a reasonable thing. I mean, I, I would answer yes to that, right? You can see on virtual agents day, as I said, I always go back to the support. The nice part is you can go and track digital deflection rates and accuracy to be like, hey, is this able to handle as good or better than a human, right? Um, so we see that today. People use chatbots today in, in that fashion, right? Which is, hey, can I have less people in my contact center because I can go have a virtual agent handle it? And today, those virtual agents are much more, you know, can, can handle more complex workflows and sound, sound more natural. Um, when you talk about content generation, you know, I think about marketing, you know, the, the opportunities and the risks in marketing for that, right? As, you know, writers, and that's why we've had things like the writer strike start to, sh you know, show up and the concerns around AI for that, which is all around content generation, right, of those pieces. So I do think that that is, a, you know, opportunity or risk for sure. So I, I, I do agree with you on that, on that, on that statement. It's going to be very interesting to find out. I would love to see I mean, there, there's so many different dimensions. These things are so weird that even a concept, you know, that rolls off the tongue like progress or, you know, improvements or capabilities has a lot of different dimensions to it. I would love to see the reliability get stronger. And I think it sounds like, you, you know, that's a big focus for you too. I am worried that the sort of raw power will get will continue to get stronger and that the kind of robustness is going to have a hard time keeping up. And that seems to me to be a recipe for sort of just a generally volatile, unpredictable situation. Uh, but to the degree that work can get done to make things more consistent without, you know, turning them into Einstein's, uh, you know, in the immediate future, then I think that is like a really that's like what the economy needs, right? The economy doesn't need something actually all that much smarter than GPT-4 for most roles. It just needs it to be like faster, maybe a little cheaper and more reliable. But yeah, I think it's for whatever reason, progress on those dimensions is proving a little bit harder to come by. Can you clarify, when you say reliable, can you clarify what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, there's, again, even that has kind of different dimensions to it, but I've been thinking a lot about this state space model moment recently. And, you know, I think that one of the key limitations of the current transformer-based language models is they're purely episodic. You know, the, the episodes are getting longer as the context windows get longer, but they have no mechanism to 
carry anything forward from one episode to the next, right? So it's like they always have total amnesia. Uh, that kind of gap between, you know, they obviously have these, they have like massive knowledge encoded in the weights, and then they have kind of a little context and kind of nothing in between. Well, now we have like rag and stuff in between, but, you know, kind of hacky stuff in between. Something, an integrated memory to me feels like maybe the way that we get to this higher level of reliability. And again, I think there's a lot of ways to measure or kind of conceive of reliability, but to some degree, it's like predictability, legibility, consistency, being told once that you did the wrong thing and then like actually listening to that and doing it right again in the future. And those are the things that I think the the Transformers kind of fall down on today where they aren't you know, and that prevents them from being like reliable coworkers. That makes sense. Any thoughts on memory? I, this is like a, a real kick of mine at the moment. And um, oh, I'm going to have a, a insanely long monologue episode coming out about it. But um, do you, is that a, an area that you are um, are thinking about as well? The, yeah. I mean, to, to your said, like the context window and being you think of like applications for customers, right? Which is it all stems from being able to personalize the content, right? Or that experience. And it all stems from, yes, being able to pass information from, as I said, you classify it as like multiple episodes, but multiple conversations in the past. And today, the way that you handle that is you are pulling information from a system of record and trying to provide that context to it. But it doesn't have the full context because again, Old records might be partially intact. They might not even exist. Nobody has them. And I think to me, that's again, comes back to like our biggest opportunity of what I think really excites me about the platform of, of really any communications platform is you can suddenly have a record for every conversation. Assuming you want to record, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put the, the preface out there of like, assuming you want to have a record of it. Great. If that, if that is true, then suddenly you have this really amazing opportunities that open up of saying, suddenly I can go personalize the content in the moment. Suddenly I have this understanding of the past seven conversations that we had. Um, and that really then opens up the opportunity for these virtual agents or virtual sales assistants, you know, however you want to kind of frame it. Um, so I think the lot figuring out this next step of like the long-term memory, um, that to me is like something that needs to happen again. Now I have this hesitancy of like, these are all the things we have to have happen. Right. And, you know, how quickly, how quickly does that change? But, you know, GPT-4 and the, and the token limits, like those created big challenges just as I go back to like our, you know, to, to take a step back, it's you take a long form transcript, like we would have to go break the transcript up and you're like, hey, go summarize this piece of the transcript. And then suddenly you've taken, you know, a, a 30 minute conversation, you've got to split it up 16 times and you're taking 16 summaries and asking for an aggregate summary. Like these are all the challenges that show up and you're like, well, the better way to get a, a summary from that is if the token limit and is increased, like I make one request for a summary and guess what? That summary that I get from that is much more, it's got better context. Um, so these are all of kind of, I think, the, the big implications for these next experiences that we want to see. And I think for me, um, as I said, like why I get excited about this is you see these experiences and they're kind of still, you know, it's, to, to use your words, they're 70, 80 percent of the way there. And you can see what it's going to look like when it's when it's 100 percent. Fascinating conversation. I, I especially uh, love getting into just kind of the somewhat divergent views of the, or, you know, expectations, not necessarily views, but expectations for the short-term future. Anything else you want to cover today that we haven't got to so far? 
No, I think we covered like we covered a lot of ground. As I said, like you know, reasons we we, we kind of chose our path, of, like trying to do a lot in house, and uh, it was fun talking about. As I said, like the the views. I was like, oh, I got to bookmark this, and we'll come, you know, hopefully come back a year or two later and see how this plays out. But you know, for me, as I said, I think there's just tremendous opportunities, especially in sales and support and marketing. I think those are like three just ripe um, areas for opportunity for AI to be leveraged. Right, whether it's around content generation or just understanding conversations and powering assistance and automation within them. Dan O'Connell, AI and strategy at Dialpad. Thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. All right, thanks, Nathan. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.